0: You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice.
1: All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to episode two of Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Dylan Conduction.
0: I'm Matt Tsai,
1: and we're here with Dr. Mark Passanen, who is a former ACP Vermont governor and the current uh, residency program director for the internal medicine program at UVMMC. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Dr. Passanen's work in uh, chronic pain management and, with particular respect to uh, prescription opioids, uh, this is kind of coming in light of. The most recent CDC guidelines that came out in 2016 that have also been uh, getting some pushback in a couple editorial pieces recently. We wanted to hear from him, uh, kind of how he's seeing, uh, opioids being descri- uh, prescribed in Vermont and kind of get a, a feel for how these guidelines are, are being implemented in, in practice.
0: Now, for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with what these guidelines say, essentially these guidelines are recommending that non-opioid therapy remain first-line treatment for chronic pain, but that opioids are acceptable options for pain management if administered with clear goals, frequent reassessment, gradual dose increases, and, of course, an abundance of caution. They particularly stress caution for dose increases past 50 morphine milligram equivalents a day, and encourage physicians to carefully justify any decision to increase a dosage past 90 morphine milligram equivalents a day, although they don't endorse immediate reductions for patients who are already taking a dose above this level. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about how these guidelines have changed your management of patients with chronic pain and your ability to balance
2: sufficient pain management with patient safety? Thanks for having me. It's a fun, one of my favorite topics. Pain management has always been hard. I've been doing this 20 some odd years. And when I first got into my own practice, opiates were about the only thing. And when I say opiates, we're really talking about what other folks might call narcotics, but we're going to use opiates or opioids. Uh, we're really one of the primary pain medications that we had. and we, And we started to, I would say, experiment with how those work for pain. And in the short run, I think many people have the experience that being on opiates in the short term uh, has some benefit. Um, But then we started to use those medicines long term and started to question how useful they were. I think many of us in practice were wondering about how useful they were. And then, of course, we started to hear more and more problems. Uh, In 2016, when the CDC guidelines came out, that was a, a big moment, I think, for all of us to reflect on what we've been doing. There was nothing super novel in those guidelines. There was nothing we hadn't been talking about or thinking about. But the way they put them and outlined them in a nice digestible format that you could get through, I think really, really did make us sit down and think about what we were doing. And I, I tell this story real quickly of, of having been in New Zealand in 2009 and having been there for six months and seen almost nobody on opiates on chronic, for chronic pain. And coming back to a practice in in Burlington that had tons. And so that was one of my early wake up calls for, are we doing this? Is this really helpful? But it's still tough. We're we're not good at pain. Um, And and we're still not great at taking care of pain. We have more and more options, but we're still not great at it. And I think this balance has really, has really been a tricky one. But what we've learned is the medicines don't help lots of people. And I think we all know that. And we all kind of knew that. The CDC guidelines reminded us that some people don't do well in these. But as we get further in that conversation, it's, it's, I think, much more nuanced than that.
1: So you described a bit about how that you've been tracking kind of the pattern of, of prescription in your own practice, but how, how do you think other Vermont physicians are doing with these guidelines, particularly kind of at your position at the hospital, maybe seeing a lot of patients who come in from their primary care practice uh, who maybe don't have the best pain control?
2: Yeah, I think uh Vermont physicians and I'm lucky enough to go out into practices and, and do some education on this topic. So there's no doubt everyone is struggling with this. And I think the guidelines impacted people in, in one of two ways, uh, maybe three ways if we expand a touch. But One was using it as a justification to really stop using medicines or, or to significantly reduce using the opiate medications that they've been doing for some time, maybe had thinking about uh, and that was their their reason to do uh, was the reason to do it, and so they would sort of uh, point to those guidelines as reasons they quote had to had to reduce medicines. Uh, and then, as you alluded to, and as more editorials have come out, you've had a, a number of people push back that how evidence based are the guidelines, how how they're being used by people to stop medicines that might be helping some people. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there are some people I think that benefit from opiates, and um, so you've seen people react to it in, in a variety of ways. And so one of our goals and one of the reasons it's fun to talk about is there's some middle ground there. That's mm-hmm. probably the right, right space of just thoughtful, responsible, compassionate care for people that sometimes gets lost when we're, we're sticking to a guideline. And I'll simply say, like, one of the things I never like to hear myself saying is I don't, when I hear myself say something like, I don't really want to do this, but I'm being forced to do it. Mm -hmm. everybody in that room feels bad. The patient feels bad, the doc feels bad. And you're sort of doing that to lateralize to somebody who's not in the room. But it's still really about you two coming up with a plan that works and is safe.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. And and Mark, you brought up also the variety of reactions that physicians are having to these guidelines. Uh, But I want to touch on another common issue we hear about these guidelines, and that is that they are often misapplied to patient populations for which these guidelines were never intended. Can you clarify for us which populations these guidelines apply to and which groups of patients they exclude?
2: Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think that the CDC's focus was on non-end-of-life, non-major cancer-related pain, and and that was an area that was the most controversial. Now, it's interesting, as we've gotten better at managing things like cancer, you start to see some of these same concepts spill over to mm-hmm. the safety and the responsibility and, and wanting to do right by our patients. So I do think what they focused on was non-cancer uh, related chronic pain. So people with pain for, for at least three months or longer. Uh, they focus on people who have failed other treatments. So there are a number of treatments that have had good evaluations. And I think what they really uh, didn't want to do is affect someone who's at the end of their life or in hospice care or uh really try to stay away from that. The other thing that's happened since twenty sixteen we had the c d c guidelines in twenty seventeen the state of Vermont came out with their own interpretation and added some layers to that that became more um, requirements here in our state that that built off of the c d c guidelines so we have a couple of forces out there that people are having to um, familiarize themselves with
1: well, it sounds like you know, the guidelines were an attempt to provide some basic tenets that were digestible for for practitioners to to follow in kind of dealing with this uh complicated topic. But kinda of like you mentioned, uh, there has been some questioning about how good is the evidence that these guidelines are based on. Um and of course, I mean, we always see that there's more more need for further trials. And for something like this I can imagine it's kind of hard to study, but we were wondering if you had any thoughts on kind of where's the next major research direction you need to go in in this topic that
2: will be most helpful for uh, providers going forward. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that, um, first of all, I don't think you're going to see a ton of research done on the effectiveness of common opiates. You're not going to see people enrolling. The movement is, the excitement of that is low. So we're, mm-hmm. we're dealing with a lot of look backs that people who are on opiates are not opiates. And probably the best you can tell is, uh that there is some very minor improvement in pain in people on chronic opiates in some of the trials, and maybe very small improvements in function, but they're very small, and we can look at that same, you and I can look at the same information, and one say, see, they help a little bit with pain, and another person say, that's not an important enough mm-hmm. difference to matter. So we're not going to get the definitive answer that says this is a good or bad thing. I don't think we're going to get that. Uh, in the foreseeable future, that's what we really need. Um, right. We have trials of a year adding opiates, uh, to not opiates and seeing if they help pain. And some of those trials are negative and, and people will very much latch onto that and say, see, opiates don't work for pain. But I think best we know right now, there may be very, very small benefits. It just, it's at significant risk, right? It's a risk of overdose. It's a risk of diversion. It's a risk of all the adverse effects that opiates have. Mm-hmm. And so. There's a lot of stuff, and so what we really need to figure out now and is is where the safe point is and how helpful that is, and we haven't done a very good job thinking about things like function, so now we're trying to figure out how do you assess function? Like, is this medicine actually helping someone improve their function? We have some tools, but they're pretty clunky. They take time. Yeah. We're not used to doing it, and so what we want to do. find out is, is there a group that opiates are okay in? how we identify that and i think we're still struggling that can often be such a subjective thing about you know one
1: one person's function versus another and i guess that that can't i can imagine that's pretty hard to standardize like you know if someone is uh you know thinking that they want their pain control so that they can get out in their garden versus the person who just wants it to go away while they you know relax and in their chair and tv that's that's like that's, I don't know. It's such a wide spectrum. It's hard. Right. It's hard to cover. No, yeah. for sure. because it's, yeah. it's
2: analgesia, right? It's pain relief yeah. and function. And those are the two things. And we're balancing that against adverse effects yeah. and misuse. And these are the forces that are playing out in this, in this space. And, you know, I, I didn't allude to it earlier, but certainly the fact that many practices, and this is where a lot of pushbacks have been use these guidelines as reason to really just stop opiates entirely, right. including in some people who may have been benefiting from them, at mm-hmm. least best we could tell at the time, best information we had. They're working full time. They're not having any problems. They're following all of our our kind of steps and hoops that we make folks jump through. And yet, we just sort of pulled that out from underneath them. And I always say one of the things that's interesting when you hear the language is, you know, you'll hear providers almost sound like they're blaming a patient for being on high-dose opiates. Yeah. But in reality, that's been a journey with a healthcare provider yeah. together with permission, right? The whole way. And so we've got to be better about working together yeah. to that place. But, but it's tricky when we decide we want one thing and there's a lot of fear, right? There's a lot right. of fear docs and providers are going to pull the plug on opiates, change dosing. And if, especially if they've been somewhat helpful to you in some way, mm-hmm. boy, that's a, that's a pretty scary interface with healthcare right now.
0: It might be safe to say that until we have more research and additional trials and opiate use, uh, many physicians may not feel adequately prepared to care for their patients with chronic pain. And, you know, one of the options that might especially benefit our rural providers and which we wanted to bring up in this episode is the ECHO project, which is an evidence-based online educational model that we understand is being implemented at UVMMC specifically for pain management. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role in this project, Mark, and uh, the project's goals?
2: Yeah, this has been a real, uh, a really fun project because it merges care and education, which are two of my favorite things to put in together. So Echoes is a sim- super simple model, and when people hear about it, they kind of chuckle that it doesn't sound like rocket science. But the idea was started uh, years ago by a doc in New Mexico, uh, Sanjiv Arora, and he basically couldn't see all the patients with hepatitis C at that time, a giant problem. And there was eight, 10-month waiting lists. And he became very frustrated that there were treatments available to those folks, but he just, he couldn't see them all. And he had a very simple idea, and he thought, maybe I can teach primary care providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, docs in rural New Mexico to take care of hepatitis C, and I'm gonna do it through a little bit of didactic, kind of lecture type stuff, and then just talking about a lot of cases. And I'm going to expose them to the wide range of things. Instead of them seeing one case and trying to learn from their one case in their office, they would learn from 10, 15, 20 cases every week or two. So fast forward ahead a bunch of years, there's been a lot of interest in using the same model for pain because people really struggle with pain management. They struggle with the diagnostic workup. They struggle with treatments. They don't have time to jump into some of this stuff. And so a year and a half ago, we launched the first Echo for Chronic Pain here in Vermont and really brought in pain experts uh, uh, and all kinds of folks with different backgrounds and a big cadre of practices. And we just, that's what we do. We, we spent eight sessions talking about some of the basics, about the rules, how you might taper someone, if that's what you're doing, mm-hmm. how you might measure function, how you might interpret some of the testing for abuse, all that kind of stuff, and just talked about cases. And so we saw lots of different versions and lots of different experiences. And we really tap into the expertise of our folks out in the community. It's really a, it's really a crowdsourcing exercise yeah. in a lot of ways yeah, around right. how you might do this in your own community. And so we've been, we've started that up again this year. Um, and that's been really fun to do and well received and has led us to now doing the next step of that, which is we're going into some practices and going into those places and doing some face to face as well and getting a little deeper into the weeds than mm-hmm. we can do on on a telehealth kind of education system and really try to help practices deal with this really tricky problem that's causing angst, making their job less fun, um, feeling like they're not helping or they're doing harm, things that really don't sit well at the end of the day.
0: Do you think physicians are finding this new model to be effective?
2: Yeah. I mean, so far it's a, it's a hard, right? Cause the people who sign up are the ones who are most interested. Mm-hmm. I think our, our next big challenge when you think about where we go is how do you get to the folks who are resistant to having the conversation right. or less interested? That's true for, I think maybe everything in education yeah, is right? yeah. but like that's who we need at the table, right? The folks who think, for instance, there should be no regulation or rule around this or that will tell us we, they think opiates should be over the counter. Or that no one should ever get an opiate for any kind of pain when people have very dramatic kind of falling on the side of an issue. Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of that, right? In yeah. The world. In the world. Yeah. Uh, it, it's in medicine as well. Yep. We, we want to get at like, there's, there's a middle ground here. And this is the place where doctoring is more fun. It's, it's not an algorithm. You don't just dial up the CDC thing and, and check a bunch of boxes. And then right. you've done good care. It's so much more complicated than that, but it takes time. It takes emotional energy. Um, And so, you know, I think that so far so good. And then we're just trying to get out further and further to more and more people. And the hope is that kind of technology makes it really easy for the people who want to enter that and enter that space. And and it's pretty comfortable and you can, can kind of watch a little bit at Mm -hmm. first and then it's a little bit like jumping into any of the social media things. You can (laughs) watch a little bit and watch from afar and see how it sounds and see what you learn. And then time goes on and you're now you're uh, throwing in your own thoughts or you're now you're presenting a case or now you're, going back to your office and talking about something you just learned. And that's, you know, this isn't going to flip overnight. Right? Right. We're going to yeah. chip away at this for the next few years.
1: Does the does the ECHO project kind of have like a sustained plan for like the next couple of years or you yeah.
2: kind of continue to, to run the
1: course? Yeah, like, so we tweak it, year? right? We get the yeah. feedback
2: from the first round. We've incorporated some more integrative providers because people have a lot of questions about the role of some of the other modalities because I think what a lot of people heard with the CDC guidelines is essentially what you shouldn't do but not what you should do yeah yeah <laughs> you know i mean obviously it was you should be careful but it was a lot of dose reduction or be modest uh careful i i will say i i've never emphasized it enough no point did they tell you you should get everyone off medicines it was really their stab at trying to get folks when they're starting to be more thoughtful but you know long story short it we just remind us just how risky being on high dose opiates is how risky it is to be on opiates with some other medicines mm-hmm. um you know the more the higher the risk, the more medicines, the higher the risk. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think that the uh, the Echo model has been, you know, a, a fun way to to get at it.
1: All right. So everything that we've talked about, uh, we were hoping that if uh you could just summarize for us if there was kind of like three key points that you'd want to give uh as advice to the physicians who are treating patients with chronic pain, uh what
2: what would they be? Yeah. So the first is, I think that that's, and these, none of them are, are not obvious things, I think, but sometimes sure. you just have to say these things out loud. Yep. One is this is a partnership, right? And, and, and you're, you're doing these things together. Um, We've got to be very careful that it's not docs doing things to the patient, either around the prescribing of medicines or not. And so you're doing those things together. Um, my second point is that you really do have to work in that space when you work together around analgesia and, and function. Mm-hmm. And that's hard because you know, we have one through 10 pain scales. We have smiley faces. We have functional yeah. senses. But the bottom line is there's some part of you. And when we go into practices, there are a lot of folks who are not sure the medicines are benefiting some. So they it's not a, it's not a good, a good feeling. So I think you've got to get at function and analgesia and feel good about it. And the third thing is if you're going to make changes, you make, you make changes relatively slow in this. There's something, uh, red flag that's going off. So if someone's getting urine testing, there's no medicines in their urine or your, getting police reports. I mean, there are some very easy ones where it's like, this is clearly not a good idea. But if we're going to try to reduce the amount of opiates, and I think that's a valid thing to try And people on really high-dose opiates. I think we know some of those folks are probably having more harm from the medicines mm-hmm. and more risk than they are getting benefit. You've got to do that real slow or you lose that me and you doing it together thing. Yeah. And so I've been surprised. I think we all think everyone's going to say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, don't touch my medicines. Mm-hmm. But You know, if you have those relationships and you start those conversations, people know these medicines are risky. They know it's not a slam dunk that they're helpful. A lot of people aren't doing awesome on the medicines, and they kind of know that. Yeah. But they don't. They all they can imagine is that they'll be worse without the medicine. So getting to that space—that's, you know, it might be making your pain fibers function differently, and it might be making you hurt in ways you didn't used to hurt—is is is still new and is a tough sell, but best done if you can do that together great advice. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Oh, I'm my really pleasure. Super it. fun. Uh, and congrats on your fancy new podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hopefully the second episode of many more. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Look forward to that.
0: That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai, And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.